want to thank every worship leader. I want to thank everybody that jammed with those worship leaders, tech, everybody that was involved to make the Friday and Saturday worship nights happen. It, I was just astounded to see everybody, our church coming together. So thank you, worship leaders. Thank you all that gave of your time to do that, to seek the Lord with all your heart and to lead us in doing that. It was really cool. And then I really want to call out, and I don't know if they're here. I see one, Adrienne Jordan and Sherry Carey. They made the prayer stations happen. It it wouldn't happen if they weren't a part of this. I want to thank you guys for doing that. Just really awesome. They, uh, we have secret weapons here at church, and one is Joni Parker and the other is Sherry Carey. We love them a lot, and they do a, a lot around here. They're amazing, amazing. And, um, and church, you showed up. And um, it wasn't about even the music or the prayer stations. It was about seeking the Lord. That was it. We were here for him. That was it. And um, you guys showed up. It was just really cool. So anyways, I think it's always good that, that we come together when we read scripture, not all the time, but I think it's good to teach that, and especially because I see a lot of kids in here, that we stand at the reading of the word of God. Guys, the, go ahead and stand, because we're going to read, but I want to just preface it saying this, that when we read the word of God, this isn't just some manuscript amongst all the other manuscripts, it is spirit-breathed. It says that the prophets, they didn't just write down what they wanted, like, hey, I feel like I want to write this down. It says the spirit moved the prophets to speak what they said, to write down what was said by the eternal God. So when we read this, let's go to it as a sacred book, the word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So here we go. This is in Jeremiah 2. And listen to what God says. He says, as a nation changed its gods, which are not gods, but my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this. Be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. I love how our father describes himself, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I'm skipping a few verses and going down to verse 17. He says, have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he, when he led you in the way? You can be seated. Well, my kids, now if there's any environmentalist in here, I apologize ahead of time for what I'm about to say. We are those people, kind of like in the Friday um, and Saturday worship nights with all the water bottles. We're that family that buy a ton of those crazy water bottles and we drink those things. But my kids are sneaky. And what they'll do is I'll find all these water bottles. All, it's like an epidemic at the Stuyvesant household. Water bottles that are half drunk all around. Even in my son's bed, I'll find water bottles and near, near Ellie's bed. And most of the time, it doesn't have a cap on it. And so we, we throw them away. We'll put it in the fridge. We'll do all this stuff. And I'll go back, and it's like a water bottle of a certain brand that I know that we had a year ago somehow ends up in my son's bed again. I'm like, where are they hiding these and bringing these out? But it's this crazy epidemic of the Stuyvesant house. And if you've ever seen the movie Signs, has anybody ever seen that before? I, remember, I, love, I love it. That was awesome. That was like, a, we're going to watch that tonight kind of thing. That was cool. That was, it was really cool. But I love the little girl because she leaves the, these you know, glasses of water all around the house. And, you know, Mel Gibson's character asks her, why don't you just drink the water? And she's like, it's contaminated. 
It's contaminated. Well, that's me. Now, look, I don't know if I stand on science and reason when I say this, but every time my kids start to drink those water bottles that are a year, ago, a year old, I'm, like, doing the parental dive to stop them. Like, no, it's contaminated, you know, that kind of thing. Like, don't drink this. Again, I don't know if I'm standing on science and reason when I say this, but to me, it's contaminated, okay? But see, it's like our spiritual lives. We tend to drink contaminated water, the contaminated water of the world, not the fresh living water that flows from his throne, that our father describes himself as the fountain of living waters. In Jeremiah, he speaks of these broken cisterns. Cisterns were um, often man-made wells, and ancient workers would develop this sticky lime plaster that they would put all inside of it, all along the, the bedrock to keep the water from getting cracks or seeping out. But oftentimes the cistern would develop a crack and all the water would seep out. You see, sin does the same thing. The water of the world is contaminated. It cracks us. And we forget when we've been drinking so much of the water of the world what pure living water is like. We forget our Father who's the fountain of living waters and coming to Him. The problem with drinking from the well of this world is the first thing is you compromise. And when you compromise, the very nature of compromise blinds you from the fact that your heart has departed from him. And number two, it never satisfies. It never satisfies. You drink and you drink and you drink and you're thirsty and the world's beating you down. And it seeps through those cracks that your sin has made. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, it seems crazy that a thirsty person in a desert would pass up a spring of fresh living water from poisonous water. But that's what we do. Our hearts are easily deceived. Our hearts can worship the Lord. We lift our hands in worship, yet we curse and judge our brothers, and we think we're right with the Lord. Or if we treat our wives badly and then we go pray, we think we're being heard. But the Bible says the way men you treat your wives can hinder your prayers. Or we think we're right in a situation and maybe we are right in a situation. But we really are standing on pride and blind that we're actually fighting against God's plan. Our hearts can depart from his in so many ways. Every day we choose, every day you wake up, every day you choose to trade what is precious for something that is worthless. Our hearts depart for idols. An idol is anything that replaces God in our hearts. Anything you trust in when you should trust in God alone. Anything that captures your love or your heart so that it is above God in your life. What happens when when we do this? Our hearts grow cold and little things begin to chip and crack over time. It's just like a marriage that goes from amazing devotion to inattention, to apathy, to neglect, to antagonism, and finally rejection. And then you wake up next to that person and say, how did I get here? It's the same with our spiritual lives. We drink so much from the water of the world. We wake up one day and say, how did I get so involved in religion and not relationship? How did I get so involved in judgmentalness? Are you there? That's how we are. It's compromise. It's compromise. Sometimes we think one compromise won't hurt. 
sexual immorality, impurity, porn, gossip, greed, anger, drugs, boasting of knowledge, bitterness towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, little attitudes that we excuse away. We're like, oh, it's just a little attitude. Little attitudes, ungratefulness, and one of the most destructive that cripples a church and will cripple your life, a critical spirit. And the list goes on. And then the slow fade sets in that slow fade that we don't realize is happening to our hearts and our minds. And we find we've traded relationship for religion. And we often don't even know it. You see, every day we face the choice of self or God. Every day you wake up, will I go my own path or will I go God's path? And every day God is calling us to return when we've compromised or what's been called backsliding. We don't like to use that word in church anymore but God likes to use it. In fact, he uses it quite a bit for his loved ones, and I see a lot of loved ones in this room. I want to give you a definition of backsliding, but first in Revelation, there's a very strong church that Jesus addresses. They're the right doctrine church. Doctrine is hugely important, but he addresses this church, and he says, you've lost your heart. You're operating in religion, not relationship. They were a loveless church, and Jesus says, guys, you've missed the point. You forgot me. Return to your first love. So here's that definition of backsliding. Backsliding is any way we've departed from our first love, Jesus. Jeremiah 3 says this, Return you backsliding children, and I will heal you of your backslidings. You see, we misrepresent God so much, we think he just can't wait to say, Oh, sinners, I can't wait. Throw down the fire and the thunder and the lightning and get you. No, God's like, I see that you're destroying your marriage, that I see that you're destroying yourself. Come to me, return to me. I want healing in your life. God doesn't want to draw out your sin so he can destroy you. He wants to heal you. Henry Blackaby says this, sin is lethal and we must treat it as such. You see the ultimate problem of everything I'm talking about when it comes to compromising these attitudes and the critical spirit is called sin. S-I-N, sin. Guys, we are commanded to come out and be different from the world, but we are contaminated by this world. We've been drinking from the well of the world and bringing it into the church. 2 Corinthians 6 says this, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols For we are the temple of God. If you are a born-again Christian, you are the temple of the living God. We are living stones being built together in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And God said this. It's a promise. I will live with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out. Be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And I love this. It doesn't say we've got to earn the promises. It says since we have these promises, God is waiting for us to jump into the promises we already have in Christ Jesus. Since we have these promises, writes Paul, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. It's this last line that hits me every time. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Holiness. 
That's the very nature of our God. It's not just his function. It's who he is, his essence. Our God is holy. The angels are constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. He is holy, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Do we revere God anymore? Do we revere the God of Israel? Do we revere that I am that spoke out of the burning bush? Do we revere him, maker of heaven and earth? Listen, our walk must correspond with his nature and his very nature is holiness. But see, the tragedy is we know all that, right? You've been around, but we aren't living any lives any differently from those around us, whether they're Christian or not. But here's the problem. It doesn't bother us. It doesn't bother us. Do you know what bothers God? It's called sin, and it grieves his heart. Sin is coming up short of what God has required. And you're just like, well, I'm just human. You know, I'm human. That's what we say. Or we use Paul's passage as an excuse. The thing I want to do, I don't do, and and that. We need to go back in Romans and actually look that up and, and get that in context. I'm just human. You are indwelt by Almighty God. You are a temple, a child of the king of kings, indwelt by a holy God. Your life is not your own. You are purchased with the sacred blood of Jesus, the blood of the lamb. We owe a debt. We can never pay back the debt of love that was shown for us. To know that and to resist that by choosing our own way is sin. It's sin. Sin is rebellion. I know what God says to do. And I choose not to do it. The two words that we're saying that cannot go together are no, Lord. No, Lord. Sorry, I won't do that. No, Lord. I won't confront that person. No, Lord. I'll keep sinning. No, Lord. Porn's not that bad. No, Lord. No, Lord. No, Lord. Until one of those words gets dropped. And we're saying, no, 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 no. Do you notice who got dropped? Until the Lord's no longer in the equation. But what God is looking for is those who will constantly say, yes, Lord, I will be a place of holiness. I will be a place of holiness. Yes, Lord, that is the sin that I struggle with. Lord, I confess it before you. Yes, Lord, you're right in your judgments. Yes, Lord, you are right. Your word is right. Guys, there is no minor sin with God. His desire is that we deal with sin immediately that we have a soft and responsive heart, that when sin enters, it is not welcome, that we're sensitive to it. In the scriptures, it talks about in the Old Testament that God is talking about his loved ones, his people, and he says they've turned their back on Jerusalem when they pray. See, they were commanded to pray towards Jerusalem. They were commanded to get on their knees and say, God, you're our God, we pray to you. But they says they would turn their backs And so many of us, when we choose to gossip, when we choose a critical spirit, when you choose sexual immorality, what you're doing is you're turning your back on the holy of holies. And God says, I can't abide that. You see, from our perspective, a little sin won't hurt. It's all right. All my other Christian friends are doing it. But from God's perspective, it is a house he cannot abide. Most of you know how King David committed adultery with Bathsheba in the Bible. King David, a man after God's own heart, commits adultery with Bathsheba in the Bible. And after that, David kills 
her husband, who was a faithful man of God, not good. You think he would understand how bad his sin was? I mean, he killed someone, right? See, that's how bad sin is. We know, but we don't know. Our hearts are so deceitful and they justify so much. We justify the sin. We justify the unforgiveness. We justify the critical spirit. It's their fault. They did it. God says, I'm talking about you. I want you to look at you. The biggest thing you need to hear in the story of David is that God had to intervene into David's life. Nathan, the prophet, is sent by God. David would never have seen his sin unless God granted it. The Bible says God grants repentance. What's that saying is we need his help to understand the effect of our sin, to get past the layers of justification, to get past the unforgiveness, to get past the denial and the blaming of others. We need to say, Lord, if you don't intervene at this church, if you don't intervene in my marriage, if you don't intervene in my life, I will continue, we will continue, and we will persist in sin till it destroys us. See, David, he was supposed to be out to war. He was a warrior. He was a warrior king. It says right before he sins with Bathsheba that in the time when kings went to war, guess who's not where he's supposed to be? King David. It's clear that he was not in the right place. And so often we're in the places that we shouldn't be with people that we shouldn't be with. And that includes Christians. David's out on the roof. He should have been out in war. And Bathsheba is bathing. She was actually doing something spiritual. She's worshiping. She's doing a ritual cleansing. And David sins. You know, sometimes the places where sin happens is amongst worship. It's among the places of God. These things that we're doing. And David sins commits adultery, and murders her husband to cover it all up. And when God, this is what I want you to hear, when God sends Nathan, it's probably been a full year. Most theologians think it was a full year after David had committed the crimes that he did. God gave David a full year to repent. And if God had not intervened, he probably wouldn't have. David wasn't broken before the Lord until Nathan comes a year later. By the way, Nathan represents the Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit is our Nathan. But we're often not listening to Holy Spirit when he says, I can't abide that. It's destroying you. Stop gossiping. Stop hating. You need to forgive. But we're not listening to the Holy Spirit. And it's been a year. You see, the problem with sin It's just because there's not immediate consequences. Don't think there won't be. We think, I can go right up to the line. I can go right up to the line. It won't affect me or anyone else. It's a secret. But for me to sin without the regards to the name I carry in my life would be to bring deepest pain to his heart. You see, my children carry my name. They carry the name of Stuyvesant. When they go over into kids' ministry, we had to talk to him today. I don't know where Rob is. We had to talk to my son today because he represents his daddy when he goes in there. He represents his daddy when he goes into the world. Ellie and Jason represent my name. It's the same with us. You represent your father's name. You represent Yahweh. You represent the great I am wherever you're at. And it cost him everything to have you. His own life on the cross And when we cause others to misunderstand the holiness of God, when we gossip, judge, hate our brother, excuse our sin. Guys, we are a polluted people, cracked cisterns. No wonder the lost world can't see Christ in us. How many times have you heard this? 
Christ, Christians aren't any different. Christians, then they sin all to look at them. You see, your sin empties God of his holiness before others. He's still holy, just your life is empty. Tim calls it wrecking your witness. Let me ask you, are you concerned about God's name or your own name? Let's be real. Who do you fear, people or God? What David is realizing when Nathan comes to him and says, you're the man, David, you're the one that sinned. A year later, David is realizing that he carries the name of the Lord. It's the same with us. You've taken that name upon you when you were saved. If you're a born-again Christian in here, you bear the name of the great I am. And when you violate anything he has said, it's a reflection on God. It empties God of his holiness before others and of his righteousness. Where you go, you carry his name with you, even in your Christian circle. David's response, it's so beautiful. In Psalm 51, we get a psalm that shows David's heart. We get a psalm that shows when David is finally broken before the Lord, a psalm of his heart and brokenness pouring out to God. Psalm 51 is David's response to understanding the depth and the effect of his sin. He starts out, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your love kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And this is my favorite part. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. Psalm 51 is David's response to God's helping him to understand that his sin has far more serious, is far more serious than David gave it credit for. Do you realize your sin is far worse than you give it credit for? That your gossip is far worse than credit. Hey, I'm pointing the finger at me. If you guys have been reading Calvary Road, there's always three fingers pointed back, right? Verse one says, according to your tender mercies, have mercy on me. What is mercy? It's not getting what I deserve. God withholds what I justly deserve and what he has the right to immediately do. What did David deserve from God immediately, right after he sinned? What did he deserve? Death. God didn't have to wait a year, but God was merciful. That's our God. And David was finally broken, and he was forgiven because he was broken over his sin. It wasn't a casual, half-hearted repentance. He finally admitted and said, deal with my sin. Blot out my transgressions. I violated it. I committed it. You said don't do it, God, and I did it anyway. His response is, wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me, Lord. Purge me. Blot out all my sin. Create in me a clean heart. It's a broken heart before God. It's not a, I'm sorry I got caught with this, God. Or, I'm so sorry, Lord, can you take away those consequences? No, it's a broken and contrite heart. This is God. I don't care what it is. I've got to come back to you. I've got to have you and you alone. 
Guys, brokenness is the path to revival, to spiritual renewal. This church will not have revival until we're broken before the Lord over our sin and how our sin is blocking a world from seeing a holy God. Verse 3, David says, I acknowledge against you, and you alone have I sinned. You see, David's learning that even though he sinned against Bathsheba, even though he killed Uriah, her husband, and if you remember this, the kingdom becomes divided. Because of David's sin, you could trace the divided kingdom to David's sin. That's how the consequences spread out. And his own sons would reject him. But first and foremost, David now realizes in his brokenness that it's against God. He understands that it was against God that he sinned. He says, in your sight, Lord, in your sight. David realizes and acknowledges that he knew God was watching. God, you were watching. I knew it. I did it willfully. It wasn't a secret. He knew God was there. David says that you may be found just and blameless when you judge. In other words, you are right in how you deal with my sin because sin is serious with you. It may not be serious to us, but it's very serious with God. I can't justify it anymore. God, you're right. When you examine my heart, you are right. Listen, what you measure out to others will be measured back to you. What you measure to others will be measured back to you. There are consequences to sin. No, we don't like to hear that. But sin always has far-reaching consequences that we set in motion. Let me read you what I've been talking about in 2 Samuel. Nathan's going to come and give a parable to David. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate his own food and drank from his own cup and it lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. A traveler comes to the rich man, but the rich man refuses to take anything from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And this is very much like us when we're caught up in our sin and justifying. Listen to David. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore full food for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Isn't that how we are when we get caught in our sin? We don't know we're caught yet. We always want justice for others, but we don't want justice for ourselves, right? Amen. Then David said, then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man, David. You did it. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And I love our God's heart. Listen, listen to to God's tender response to David. I love this. I anointed you king, David, over all Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Do you hear his heart beating for David? Why have you despised the command of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be 
your wife. You see, God tenderly, although it's paining David in his heart, is putting David's sin in the context of the grace of God within this passage. David's gone from shepherd to king, rags to riches, from unlikely to likely, and God wants to remind him that he's been good to him. David, I've kept you. I gave to you. I made you who you are. I'd do anything for you, David. I'm your God. I love you. I saw you when no one else saw you. David, you sinned, my son. David, you sinned against all the background of my goodness to you. You sinned against the background of my grace. And I want you to see your sin within that context. David, you're a leader. I gave you all this. And that makes your sin far worse. You had to sin with the knowledge of that, the knowledge that I've done this for you. Why have you despised me, my son? Why, my loved one? And sinned in my sight. Do you hear God's heart? And we say, but, well, it was just a moment of weakness. I mean, all my other friends, church friends are doing it. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things. It won't hurt. Who am I hurting? That's your perspective, not God's perspective. God says, you've done this against all my grace. You may say, well, I don't have what David had. He was highly favored. He was the king of Israel. I don't have that kind of favor. I don't have that kind of grace. That's not who I am. Yeah, you do. When you sin, you sin against the background of the cross, the ultimate expression of his grace and his love for you. You know how it was like when you got saved. It was like he would have done it just for you. If you've been the only person, he would have died for you. That's the amazing thing when he comes to each one of us. He died for the whole world. His grace and love to you. You see, for a child to sin, a child of God to sin, he has to despise God to do it. You say, well, that's not how I look at it. It doesn't matter how we see it. It matters how God looks at it. It matters how God sees it. We must see the awfulness of our sin, the very thing we want to avoid talking about in church. But here's the last thing. This is the thing that convicts me the most. And I've, I've preached this before. And every time I read this, every time I hear this, I'm like, man, it's the, the pointing of the finger, those fingers back at me. Listen to what God says to him in verse 14, chapter 12, 2 Samuel. However, David... Because by this deed, David, you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You've caused all my enemies, David, in the spiritual realm and on earth to mock me and spit at my name, to slander my name, David. Don't you see what's at stake? Replace that with your own name. Brian, your sin gave an occasion for all the enemies to mock me and spit at my name in the heavenlies. And it keeps others from knowing me. And knowing my love for them. Some of us, are, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know if I see it. Listen, when you sin against your brother or sister in Christ, when you judge each other, when you gossip, when you look at porn, when you're prideful, when you lie, when you want to make others look bad so you look good, when you get angry at your spouse, when you know the good you ought to do but do not do it, the Bible says you sin. And what God is waiting for is for us to finally see the one who loves us the most, to put it in context to the one who loves us the most and say, Lord, it was really against you. Against you and you alone have I sinned. TBA, are we going to be a church that gives occasion for the enemy to mock our Lord and Savior that died on the cross for us?
Will we be a people that gives occasion for the enemies of God to mock our Jesus? Let me ask you this. Do you acknowledge the cross or do you trample the cross underfoot? Most of you be like, I acknowledge the cross. Listen, it's pretty salty. Hold on, this is salty. Word of God is salty. Listen to this. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there, are no longer rema- there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the son of god underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace that's salty wow for we know him who has said vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and again the lord will judge who his people It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, I'm all about the grace and love of God, but we need to fear our God. How does God see a New Testament believer? How does God see a New Testament believer? What does he say to us? I'm gonna turn it on myself. Brian, for you to have sinned is to tread underfoot the Son of God. Don't do it. Brian, you're treating the common blood You're treating the blood of of the lamb as common. The covenant that I made with you cut in my own son's flesh. The very precious blood of Jesus that makes you white as snow. Don't treat it as common. Don't do it, son. Brian, you're insulting the spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit that lives within you. He's been telling you it's sin that you need to be careful about it, that you've got to come away from the gossip, you've got to come away from the sexual addiction. You're hurting your relationship with me and destroying yourself and destroying others around you. Don't do it. Are you acknowledging the cross or trampling the cross underneath your feet? I've done this before. But when we gossip and when we sin and when we think it's all right with God, What you're doing is you're trampling the cross and saying it's not a big deal. You're trampling the sacrifice that he made for you, the great love that he gave to you. Are you acknowledging the cross? Are you trampling the son of God underneath by your attitude, your gossip, your bitterness, your unforgiving spirit, your opinions, your sexual sin. There are consequences. He will judge his people. Let's get ready for another salty scripture. First Peter 4.17 has the wrong verse up there. 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with who? The household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, What will become of the godless man and the sinner? That's salty. That's a word for us. Do we want revival? Do we really want it? Because it's more than songs. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song itself is not what you required. You search much deeper in the things within. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Some of you might know that song. 
God's calling us to a place where we come away and we be different, that we start drinking from the fountain of living water, our heavenly Father, and away from the water of this world. We are a contaminated people. It's time we dealt with our sin, the fear of man, comparison, that addiction, that attitude towards your brother you need to leave at the cross. I'm going to open it up here. Brandon's going to come up and we're going to have a song. You may need to go to somebody in here and say, forgive me, forgive me. You may need to step outside because they're not here and you need to call somebody and say, forgive me. Whatever it is, if you want to go kneel at the cross and say, I'm tired of trampling the Son of God underfoot. I'm tired of treating the Spirit of grace and His covenant like it were common. Then you need to. Ask for that forgiveness. Here's the deal. If we want revival, the path to revival is this scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want grace in your life? We have to come away from being a stiff-necked people and humbling ourselves before our God and saying, God, you are right, and against you and you alone have I sinned. I will not insult the spirit of grace. I will not insult my brother or sister in Christ. I will tell my spouse and my parents I'm sorry, and I will follow you, Jesus. I will count the cost. You may need to come up here and kneel. You may need to kneel where you are. You may need to tell your spouse, I'm sorry. Forgive me how I've treated you. Guys, it's time for reconciliation. Remember, the whole cross thing, it's called the ministry of reconciliation. Are we reconciled? Are you reconciled in this room? It's time we dealt with our sin. We want to experience God. Humble yourselves before our God. And he will lift you up. He will lift you up. He will lift you up. Are you broken over your sin? Are you concerned for his name and his holiness? The proverb says this. It says that an enemy multiplies kisses, but a friend wounds. How many of us just allow, I don't want to be judgmental with my friends in Christ. If you're multiplying kisses, you're really an enemy. Be a friend that wounds out of love, that gets the log out of your own eye so you can see the speck clearly in your brother's eye so out of love you can go to them. Stop multiplying kisses to those people that need to hear and have the tough love spoken over them and in them. God wants this church to change, but I'm telling you, revival will not, God is good. He'll bring his presence. Thank you, Lord, for being here. Thank you for the things you do. But I'm telling you, revival starts when God's people say enough of sin, enough of the bad attitude, enough of the critical spirit, enough of the gossip, enough of the porn, enough of the sexual immorality, enough of the sin. Our God is calling us. Do we want this TBA? More than a song. He requires more than a song, more than even preaching, more than this. He requires your whole heart in obedience. That is your acceptable worship before God, to be a living sacrifice unto our God. Let me pray. Lord, God, I know this is a salty sermon, Father, and I repent. Father, I repent of bitterness. I repent of hurt, Father. I've, I've received hurt that's kept me up in the middle of the night, God, and doubting everything and doubting you, Father. I repent. I say right now, God, forgive me. Forgive me, Holy One of Israel, for not keeping your name holy. For you are so good and awesome and powerful. Father, I pray for our church that we want to bring more than a song, 
more than a, a couple hours on a Sunday or serving here and there, but our whole life dedicated to you, that nothing you ask of us is too tiresome or too hard. When you took it to the cross, you carried the cross of my shame. You took the cross of my sin. You didn't say I was too busy to serve me and wash my feet. Father, I just pray that the gossip would come to an end, Father. I pray that your people would begin to extend grace as we humble ourselves, Father. That the judgmental and critical spirit would drop, Father. God, we want you. It's not about us. It's not about standing in our rightness. You're right. You're the judge. You're the righteous one. Father, we want to declare your glory. But God, we want to be a people that have purified ourselves in holiness out of reverence for you as your scriptures instruct us to, Lord. We love you. You are God, and you are right, and you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen. At any point, you can come. You can kneel up here. You can go to the cross. If you need someone to talk to, the next steps. If you don't know Jesus right now, his blood covers our sin. His blood reconciles us. His life can be yours. New life. You need a new life to keep from sinning. You can't not sin on your own. You can't stop sin on your own. You have to have new life from Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And his blood speaks a better word. His blood breaks chains. His blood sets you free. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to go right back there. Tim, Joni, Eric, and I will be standing back there. Maybe you need to go ask forgiveness. Maybe you need to turn to your spouse. Maybe you need to go to your child. Even if they're on stage, even if they're in the booth, if they're over in children's, you go grab them. If they're not here, get the phone. Let's do this. Let's do this. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.